Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and thank you for joining me for episode 35 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. It's Ellen here, workplace and coaching psychologist, podcaster, writer, partner, parent, and I am excited that you are here and that you are keen to hear my fabulous guest for today, Dr. Desiree Dickerson, who is both a neuroscientist and a psychologist. So she has a real depth of understanding of how our brain affects our behavior. And we're talking today about what happens to our brain as we age, and more importantly, what we can do to keep our brain in shape as we age, to maintain our cognitive powers, and to hopefully ward off some of the more preventable forms of dementia. Now, I'm in my 40s, and I have to say that probably prior to my 40s, I really didn't give much thought to aging. And it's not that I necessarily feel much older in my 40s most days anyway, but I do feel like, especially since entering my mid-40s, I have a much greater perspective now on the latter half of my life and I'm starting to think about what I should be doing to prepare for that, something I never gave any thought to when I was younger. So I'm thinking about my physical health now, not so much in terms of my appearance as I might have in my 20s or even my 30s, but in terms of how I'm going to stay physically capable and active in later life. And I'm thinking about my mental health and my brain health in the same way. How do I keep performing at the best of my abilities for what will hopefully be another 40 or maybe 50 years of actively engaging in life and everything that it has to offer? So as you might imagine, I have lots of questions for Desiree, including her tips for better brain health as we age. Let's start the conversation. I am very pleased today to have Dr. Desiree Dickerson on the show speaking to us from Spain. And Desiree is a neuroscientist and clinical psychologist who works largely in the fields of science communication, public health, and lifestyle change. And she gives public talks on brain health and well-being and runs workshops on how to rewire your brain for more effective behavior or to establish or change your habits. She also sees clients one-on-one, both online and in person, in a coaching role. And they might be people like high performers wanting to gain an edge, retirees wanting to change habits, or parents or teachers wanting to use neuroscience to inform their parenting or teaching styles. Desiree is also passionate about sharing the great science that's out there to help us to live healthier, richer, and happier lives. Welcome, Desiree. Thank you. Hi. And whereabouts in Spain are you? Oh, so we're down in the Mediterranean, about an hour south of Valencia. So kind of if you draw a line in from Ibiza to the coast, we're, we're there. 
in a place called, well, a teeny tiny town called Gata de Gorgos, but it's um, close to Denia. And our listeners may be able to detect that you are not Spanish by nationality <laughs> or birth. <laughs> so, so technically I'm, uh, I'm an Australian Kiwi, a Kiwi Australian. Um, I was born in Australia, grew up in New Zealand, studied, did my, my PhD in my clinical training in New Zealand. And then, okay. well, then I went to Vienna, did a postdoc in, in neuroscience in Vienna and then met my husband there and we moved to Spain. So you're a global citizen. <laughs> yeah, we are. Yes. <laughs> and also a neuroscientist and a psychologist and a parent. Oh, yes. <laughs> and one of our very common interests that we have, and, and perhaps kind of via a, the conduit of other people that we have both met online, is a shared passion for science communication and really wanting to increase, I suppose, the public understanding of particularly psychology and human beha- uh, human behaviour, but also to share the science of well-being. What kind of led you to that area? I guess I spent, you know, a number of years in academia and, and sort of the, you know, they call it the ivory tower, you know, of academia. And, and, and it becomes this kind of, you know, everyone speaks in, in, in acronyms and there's jargon and there's all these sorts of oh it just feels like you know it's this I don't want to say old boys club but you know like it's it's just sort of a you know if you've got if you've got all the right lingo and you you know the right people then you get to know that information and I just sort of felt like this there's just so much that we do know in science know already and there's so much we still need to know absolutely but but there's still a wealth of information out there on how we can live, you know, healthier, better, happier. And I just wanted to try and communicate that, I suppose. And and I guess that's partly why I started out doing both the because I did both in parallel. I did my, my neuroscience training alongside my clinical research because I really wanted to sort of one add my brick to the wall of, of the research, you know, to try and contribute in some way, but also because I wanted to find a way to better channel that information. I'm moving my hands a lot, but people can't really see that. As I'm <laughs> I can see it. That's fine. <laughs> lots of, lots of channeling that information to, um, <laughs> to the public, you know, to the coalface, to being in, in the clinic or, or, or just people in, in general. Mm. I know I personally find myself, and, and I didn't spend a huge amount of time in academia in any kind of, you know, professional sense, but I even within the psychology profession locally, I feel that psychologists and perhaps neuroscientists and perhaps lots of professions, I'm not sure, I can only speak for the one that I'm kind of within, spend a lot of time speaking to each other. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's not our, perhaps not, that's probably not the clinicians, you know, they're obviously seeing people, but I, I think certainly in, in the areas of research and the areas that where the kind of, you know, stuff is being developed, there is a lot of conversation with other psychologists and yeah, I don't feel that we've necessarily been particularly good at getting the information out there to the everyday person, which has been very much the purpose of this podcast. And it's so exciting to meet other people with a similar passion. Mm, I agree. So you mentioned that you did your neuroscience study and your clinical work in parallel, which what sort of interest you did first? Because neuroscience is a rel- well, I keep saying it's a relatively new area. It's really not. I know that now. <laughs> But, you know, um, which, which came first? 
for you? Well, I mean, so te- technically my PhD is in, in psychology, but it, within within our psychology departments, there's sort of neuroscience wings and, and that because as in order to do your clinical training, you had to have a PhD in psychology or, or a master's mm-hmm. in psychology. It had to be in psychology. But, um, oof. So, I mean, they really did both practically as in me doing them both at the same time developed together. And also, I guess, during my undergraduate training was very much whenever you got to, you know, I love the developmental psychology side of things, but it was always from a, you know, fascinated by, you know, what was happening in the in the brain as these children developed, you know, and, and even from, you know, this is sort of social psychology aspects, the individual and group dynamics and stuff like that. There was always, I was always fascinated by how that, stem back to how the brain was functioning or where that drive came from, you know, from a physical sense. And mm. that kind of kept my fingers in both pies, if you will. You know, I was really always kind of interested in, in how they came together. And I, and I think that's kind of how I see who we are. You know, we are our brains, from my opinion, you know, our mood, our, our memory, our, our, our habits, you know, even how we experience pain. It's, all, all of that, you know, we see as, as, as the psychology of who we are, but that is, that's, that's a neural, that's neural activity, you know, that's, that's neurons communicating with each other. That's, that's our brain doing its thing. And, and maybe that seems quite, quite dry from, you know, it's quite a reductionist kind of view, but, but for me, it's, it's quite freeing to, if, if you can, if there's a mechanistic explanation for it, then there's ways of tinkering with it, you know, there's ways of, of fixing it when it breaks down, perhaps, you know. Yeah, so much more, but more than just the behaviour. I suppose it's the source of that behaviour. Where does it come from? What's actually going on in our in our brains that drives that action? And sure. yeah, I think that's that's interesting. That notion that you know, if we can kind of understand that, then we've got a better grasp, maybe, of making changes to it or tweaking things or. You know, it, it is an exciting burgeoning field, not one that I've studied at all, but I can sort of understand your fascination for it. I, I think it's, I think it's a, you know, I think maybe contrary to popular belief, but like digging down into something and really pulling it all apart, yeah, there's really, I don't know, there's beauty in that, you know, there's beauty in fully understanding the mechanisms of something. Spoken like a true scientist. <laughs> <laughs> And so how do you, I mean, this, this probably parallels a little of what we were just saying, but how do you personally, having having a background in both the neuroscience and psychology, differentiate between these ideas of the brain versus the mind? It's getting quite philosophical, really, I know. But do you have a, a conceptualization of your own between the two or are they one and the same? Oh, to me, I, I think, as I was saying, like they're very much one and the same for in my opinion mm. and uh, that that you know it's it's not my saying but you know the mind is is what the brain does you know that it's an emergent property of neural activity you know that, that yeah that we are you know our, our neural connections our our mm. all those things that we see we hear we think we experience our perceptions of the world they are unique to us but to our neural connectivity Mm, I like that, the emergent properties of neural activity. So it is the end, well, perhaps not the end result. It's a result somewhere along the chain between what's going on at a neural level through to how that might manifest in terms of our behaviour. And then it, if we start looking at it from a systems level, how that results in the way we interact with other people or groups or communities or organisations or wherever we might be fitting within. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, interesting. 
find a lot of your work and a lot of the work that you are now communicating to the public as part of your kind of science communication aspect of what you do is helping people to understand a bit about how to keep that brain healthy. Can you tell us why? I mean, most of us understand the need to keep our bodies healthy and I think we're starting to get a better grip as a society now on the importance of keeping ourselves mentally healthy. How, you know, why do we need to keep our brains healthy and and how do we do that? Where do I start? (laughs) That's a big Um, question, I know. (laughs) I have a big answer for you. Um, I, I think it's for a number of reasons. One, but it harps back to what, what I was saying. We are our brains, you know, we are a product of what's happening in the, those between those neural connections. So if those neural connections aren't doing the best that they can and functioning as well as they can be, then we aren't, we can't be our best selves. So there's that, and I'll, I'll get back to that. But also, I mean, our, our rates of Alzheimer's disease and dementia in the populations are growing. You know, if we live to 85, which we're increasingly likely to do, we are, you know, it's estimated that there'll be one in three of us will have Alzheimer's disease or, or some form of dementia. And that's huge. It's even, even one in two, some people say. You know, that means if mm. you're not mm. the one with dementia, then you're a carer for someone with dementia. I mean, that's, that's, that's I mean, pretty grim statistics, right? What the science is showing is that there are things that we can do about it and there are lifestyle choices and lifestyle changes that we can make that can genuinely make a difference. And I think there's, there's been a real shift in how we view our brains and how we view brain health. You know, for the longest time, I think we, it was believed that our brains were this rather fixed entity, you know, that, that you had the hand you were dealt. And that was that, yep. you know, that, that, that our brains were molded by mum and dad's genes and maybe a few experiences when we were very young, but ultimately that's who you were, you know. And, and So things like Alzheimer's might almost be kind of predestined. Yeah, just, I mean, just, I guess, yeah, partly I think a lot of people fear that Alzheimer's and dementia is certainly genetic, right? If, you, if your mum and dad mm-hmm. hasn't been, that's coming for you and that's that. You know, that's certainly one of the reasons I got into this field in the first place is my, my grandmother passed away from, from Alzheimer's disease and, and I can see that fear in my mum and I already mm-hmm. have that fear in myself, you know? I'm always like, oof, you know, mum will say, can you pass me that thingy jig?" And you're like, ooh, you know, and she'll catch herself. She's well aware, don't, don't, it's not. Mm. No, she'll be like, She's very aware that that's how my grandmother started speaking and that's not, you know, we need to find the words, we need to put in the effort, we need to make sure that we are making those neurons connect. What am I trying to say? Basically that, that our brain is something that can grow and can change over time if we nourish it, if we exercise it, if we use it properly. And knowing that we have that power, knowing that we have an, a say in that through, through the way we live our lives is really powerful. Okay, so what are some of the things if we're thinking about and and I like and I suppose we're kind of thinking, you know, I know the phrase use it or lose it is used in relation to our brain and our kind of cognitive capacity over time. But what are some of the things that we can do or that we need to be doing, not just perhaps to fend off the possibility of Alzheimer's and dementia, although obviously that's really important, especially given those statistics that you've given, which are startling, but even just to be able to kind of perform at our best day to day. Yeah. 
So there's there's lots of things. I mean, I think I think the key thing to to know before I talk about a few like more more specific points is that that learning grows neural connectivity, right? So from a, from a very young age, from birth, from before birth, even you know our our brains are wired to learn. They are, you know, so so from from young children, they go from you know rolling to crawling to to, to walking to running. They're just in this constant state of awesome learning, and they're growing. You know, at, at a very young age, they're growing actual neurons and they're growing neural connectivity, and their brains are blossoming, right? And then you fast forward, say, to high school years and adolescence, and and you're in school, you're learning constantly you know both in school and in life you know you're learning how to how to navigate social interactions other people those awful those complex you know emotional experiences that you just have to go through but are awful you know that there's there's new learning in that you know you're you're connecting critical pathways from say your your your, your prefrontal cortex that command center the front of your brain through to the rest of, of your brain you know, this massive learning and and consequently new connectivity you know, you get mm-hmm. to young adulthood, say, and you, you finish school, you might start a new job or you might be at university, but you're still in the depths of learning, right? You're still, you know, you have those days where you have complete brain fry, where you get home and you're just like, oh, I can't put another thing in there, you know? <laughs> it's full of that capacity. Exactly, you know, and, and those are common in those days, you know, in those young, in those early, early 20s and such, you, you know, and you're, you're creating new pathways. You're creating new neural connectivity. The environments are all still really novel and always really challenging, right? So, so our brains, and actually that correlates to our brains are at peak performance at that age. You know, that's that's as good as it gets, certainly, <laughs> at about 25 to 30. But, you know, you fast forward to, to sort of your late 30s, your early 40s, and and you've, you've settled into a career, more often than not, you know, you become more comfortable in your skin. You, you might be pretty good at, at what you do. You know, you've consolidated all this hard work, all this learning over your 20s and 30s, and, and you're sort of getting mm. into a rhythm, right? But your life's not without its stresses still, obviously. You know, work is, is still challenging. You you know, you still get challenges at work, say, where you're, you you know, but the, the things that you're challenged by are, are not outside of the scope of your capability, let's say, typically. Okay. Yep. You know, you've got children, you've got challenges probably, you've got house costs and, and, and whatnot. There is stress in our lives. But the ins and outs of our daily lives tend to become routine. You know, our, 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 we become creatures of, of habit, you know, whether we mean to or not. It's, it's, it makes sense It's from a brain's perspective. It's literally the path of least resistance. We use the same neural networks. We use the same sort of well-beaten neural pathways. You know, autopilot creeps into to, you know many corners of our lives, and 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 it makes sense too because it requires the least amount of energy from our brains. Does that make sense? You know, but yeah. But my argument would be is that our brains are are novelty detectors. You know, they're. They're, they're, it's what they're trained to do, you know. It's what they're trained to find what will eat us, what will kill us, what will, you know, make us sick, you know, from our sort of cave-dwelling ancestors' perspective. It's what, you know, so if our brains aren't exposed to novel things, then they simply maximise their output with as little energy or effort as possible. 
It's what okay. you need to do, right? Is to, to, to do the least amount, get the best outcome. And that mm-hmm. means routine. That means habit. That means autopilot for a lot of our lives. You know, life becomes easy from our brain's perspective. You know? Yes. We're not yes. less of the days where you've got that brain fry where you're just like, oh, you know. <laughs> so if, as you said, this brain is a, a use it or lose it muscle, then I argue that we increasing we we tend to use it yes less and less for what it's meant for you know that 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 if we genuinely want to keep our brains healthy if we want to grow new neural connectivity if we want to maintain it at its optimum have it perform for us as it can as it could then we need to use it mm-hmm. so really a long answer so you asked me you know what what can we do well that. Use it. Learning. Oh, <laughs> Learning. Use and it. it, it's interesting because what sort of came to mind, Desiree, while you were speaking then was that, you know, if you think about that evolutionary perspective, I suppose, you know, what, what so all those years of child, infancy to childhood to teen years to early adulthood and the need to keep learning and keep growing and your brain was designed to do that. And I suppose once upon a time, our lifespan was possibly only maybe into yeah. our forties. So yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, 30s or 40s. So our brain sort of went, well, that was all I was really expected to do. You know, I learned for those first 30 years and then that was all I was required for. But now of course we've got another 50 years, I suppose, or, or more possibly, and I don't know whether there's any research, but it's, it's the thinking that our brain will just say, well, now I'll just go into routine, less energy required, because once upon a time, that was it for life. <laughs> but now we've got so much longer to live. Um, I mean, I can't speak to the, to, to the mechanism, you know, evolutionarily speaking, yeah. <laughs> why we might switch into that. I mean, it, I mean, yep. it, I mean, the brain's such an energy sapper right if, if it doesn't need to be flipped on you know it switches into that kind of well you know mm. like the oh, probably a terrible analogy but the, you know the lights in the hallway you know as you walk down they switch on you know like when we use it it, it clicks into gear and basically the idea is is that all those neural connectivity and all that new learning is stockpiling neural connections for a rainy day it's it's the idea mm-hmm. that you know the more our, our neurons work together and the more they communicate well the more of those connections that we actually have later in life when we run into you know neurodegeneration or, or just damage in general the more of those connections we have to use so if, if we hit a roadblock here then we have other neural connectivity other pathways that can pick up the slack Whereas yep. if we don't keep building those neural connections and we just let them fall, you know, if they're not used and they they don't function as well as they could, then we don't, you know, when we hit a roadblock, we don't have anywhere to go. And you really okay. notice. It gives our brain options. Exactly. You don't, you really notice the problem, you know, if, if, you, if you can't find a word here but you've got nowhere else to go, then you know that you've got, you know, you're running into strife and, and things feel harder. But, but mm. you they say that education, for every year of formal education after primary school, you reduce your risks of dementia. Okay. You know, so every time, for every year of higher education, you're reducing your risks of dementia significantly. Yeah. And, yeah. and that in terms of if you're exposed to challenging work environments, 
So you're constantly using your brain. You're constantly learning. Mm. Problem solving, you know. You also, your one, your cognitive functioning is is better both now and in the future. So you're reducing the risk of cognitive decline, and you're reducing your risk of dementia as well into the future. So the more you've been using it throughout your life, the mm. better it functions for you later in life, and the 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 less risks you have of dementia. And the the rationale is that you're creating this brain reserve you know your brain's becoming you're building up a resilience you know an ability to to function despite damage and degeneration mm. that happens generally with age okay. this is i'm listening and thinking this is wonderful news for my parents who i will insist listening to this episode who are both probably like lots of people you know desperately afraid of of losing their cognitive capacity with mm. age but both in their early 70s, early to mid-70s and my dad's off studying at kind of adult education type doing comparative religion and and other things and my mum reads The New Scientist every week. So I'll tell them that they're doing all the right things (laughs) and have been doing all the right things and, and in fact, my parents-in-law who are in their mid-80s are both avid readers and and learners, you know, lifetime learners. So that's held them in pretty good stead so far, I have to say. They're in amazing shape. So yeah, that's really, really interesting. So learning is kind of, I suppose, the key thing. And I know, I mean, there's been lots of particularly in the last few years, brain training type, you know, apps and games and things. We're supposed to do crosswords and, and, but I have heard that that's not enough. Are you suggesting that it really has to be more extensive learning, really engaging in, in broader learning about our world or problem solving? Yes, in a nutshell. And because, I mean, if you think about, you know, our brains are shaped by experience, you know, from day one to forever. Like, mm. and, and experiences from through all our senses, no? Like, like it's very, you know, you, you learn tactilely, you know, as a child, first with their hands, you know, through their mouths, whatnot, you know, but they learn. I mean, if, if you're reading, if you're playing Sudoku, I shouldn't keep picking on Sudoku players, but I, they always come to me. <laughs> But, you know, like, what's the experience? The, you know, there's so many different experiences you can have and put your brain through that are learning where, you know, because the, the other things that I talk about, one is very much this mental activity, right? As you're saying that your your parents and, and your, your in-laws are very, you know, sounds like they're really engaged and fantastic. The other things are exercise, which mm-hmm. is super important for brain health. It's probably, you know, it's considered to be like sort of the closest thing to a magic bullet, if you will, to, for, for longevity and for brain health. And the other one is socializing. Okay. The idea being that th- those are sort of the three things that I, that I often push with my message is very much, you know, use your brain or you, or you lose it. Exercise, because exercise really, you know, it, it increases blood flow to your brain. It reduces, removes waste more. It it releases neurotrophic factors, factors that allow us to that enhance the growth of those neural connections that we need and and improve our ability to learn. It reduces, you know, it releases dopamine, which also helps us lock down new memories and consolidate learning. Better term, <laughs> and it keeps us, you know healthy body and, and, and mind, if you will, it reduces mm. stress levels, it enhances mood, it gives you better, you know, self-esteem levels, etc. So so exercise is, is massive, you know, if it's good for your heart, they say it's good for your brain and that's certainly true. Mm. 
And then the socializing aspect, I think also is massively important for our health and for our well-being. You know, people who researchers have shown that people who socialize well live longer than those who don't. You know, and not only that, their brains are sharper, their memories are better, they have fewer strokes, they get less colds and flus, which is kind of counterintuitive given they're spending more time with more people. But socializing is really good for us. You know, it's, it's, I mean, and I guess the flip side of being alone and, and feeling isolated is really bad for us. You know, it, it, it increases our risk of depression, it increases, you know, our immune systems don't function as well, increases our risks of, of, of heart disease and stroke, et cetera. And it increases our risk of dementia as if it wasn't dreary enough. But it, the idea is that socializing really is, is your brain at a gym, you know, that is really getting a full workout. When you're socializing with someone, anyone, the guy in the street, whoever, it, it doesn't matter who you're talking to, be it, a, be it a, you know, your partner, long-term partner, or just the lady in the veggie shop. It's about engaging with other people. It's about challenging your, your perceptions. It's about viewing someone's life, putting yourself in their shoes, if you will. You know, it's that really builds and strengthens those neural connections that we really need for a healthy brain. And, mm. and so in the very long-winded answer to your question, it's not just about Sudoku or, or finding a computer game that can force you to attend more Four moments at a time at a dot on the screen. You know, it's about getting outside and experiencing life because that's where your brain is meant to be. Mm. So it's immersive kind of experience. So we have to be fully immersed in all of those. And I, I love what you said about the kind of all the senses. So hearing, feeling, seeing, listening, touching, whatever it might be. So an immersive experience. And it's so interesting, those parallels between, because I often tell people from a, when I'm talking about well-being, particularly in workplaces, that, you know, even the most introverted of us are still social animals, that human beings are wired to connect mm. to other people and that that keeps us emotionally and mentally well. And I suppose drilling it down then to that kind of what is going on in the brain. So that's fascinating that it is actually kind of a, a brain requirement that we connect with other people, no matter who they are, that we have conversations that we, yeah, just, you know, take their perspective, that we have empathy, that all of those sorts of little things that go on are actually having an impact on the pathways in our brain and the connections that are being made and therefore keeping it lean and healthy as you will, like, like taking it to the gym. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, a really interesting kind of take on it. That'll give me a bit more fuel for making that argument when I'm talking to people in workplaces as well. Similarly with the exercise. I mean, I, I think it is amazing how much, even when I think about over my lifetime, you know, when I, I, in my mid forties. So I was growing up in the eighties and people started jogging, you know, and when you think prior to that, people didn't do. And, and I, I know that's because we had more physical lives once upon a time than, you know, sitting in offices or sitting in front of laptops or sitting anywhere, but going out and doing things like exercise, like jogging just wasn't even a thing really much prior to the eighties. And we've learned so much since that time, but starting to really understand that why that I know from a motivational point of view makes such a difference 
to getting people out there and actually doing so. I know for me, you know, it, it was never enough to do it for vanity reasons or even for longevity because, you know, that feels like such a long time away. <laughs> but if I know that getting out and exercise is actually doing good stuff for my brain, for all of those connections in the moment that I'm doing it and in the moments after, then that's a far bigger why and, and motivation to do it for me anyway and hopefully for our listeners as well. Oh, I totally agree. That for me, honestly, like you can't see in my office, there's, there's obviously a desk and whatnot, but there's a, a, a bike, a spin bike that just sits there and sort of stares at me. You know? and, and then I started really immersing myself in kind of in, in this brain health literature and stuff. My exercise has just gone up literally. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah. really find that for me massively motivating that my brain works better, that I'm, that I'm smarter, that I'm well, I'm a better mother, you know, I'm a bit just a bit of person to bear around. I'm quite sure if I exercise then then you know, but I'm also more on the ball, like I can really I feel different for, for it, sort of from mm. a work perspective, from a using my brain perspective. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's been something that I have kind of discovered just from the practical experience in the last, I don't know how long, maybe only 12 months or so that, you know, if I am feeling really lethargic or I'm having trouble solving a problem or I can't find the motivation to get the rest of the work done that's on my list, that I can actually take myself out for a walk and I do what I call my well-being walks, which nice. can just be you know, a half an hour walk just to get out in the fresh air, see something different. It's sort of a mindful activity because I try to pay attention to what's going on around me, but just that physical movement and how much it can really benefit my productivity for the rest of the day, yeah, my mood so that I'm less grouchy, not only because I've had the exercise, but also because I'm feeling like I'm getting stuff done yeah. <laughs> and it all works together. Very much so. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So we've got to exercise. We've got to learn in an immersive way. And I'm guessing that that can be anything, you know, I made mention of, of kind of scientific and, and learning and very cognitive type stuff, but I'm thinking maybe learning to dance or learning oh. a new skill or, you know, learning something that we do with our hands, maybe, you know, hobbies or whatever it might be. Definitely. And you actually, I mean, Dance specifically is something that's really good for your brain health, actually. Now it requires sort of synchronized, coordinated movement. It, you know, it also, one, it's typically social. You're surrounded by other people. Mm -hmm. Two, it's requiring you to learn new, new steps. So you're integrating your mind and and body very nicely. Three, you're, you're linking in music, which is naturally you know endorphin releasing and, and mood enhancing mm. etc and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of the perfect storm if you will of, for brain health dancers very very powerful and there's some lovely stories uh lovely stories lovely research out there that that shows um the benefits of dance on brain health and and, and well-being as well but yeah. so dance is one definitely my husband and i need to be starting lindy hop classes this year as part of our kind of brain health kick we keep going because I'm a terrible dancer and it's just going to be, it's going to go one of two ways. Either we're going to just fight the whole time and it's not going to be good for our brain health or our marriage or we're just going to laugh, in which case it will be very good for all things. But uh, hopefully it'll be the latter. <laughs> yes. but, uh, but so dance is one. Anything, uh, digital photography, for example, you know, maybe you love taking photos of your family, but you usually do it just, you know, on your phone or maybe, you know, but, but there's, you know, there's software that you can learn about to enhance the photos and, and, you know, use them to something that you really 
proud of that you you put on the wall that you sell or who knows you know mm. learning mm. a new a recipe a style of cooking maybe you love Thai but you only ever go out to the restaurant to eat it learn about the spices learn about how they integrate you know really can't you know integrate all those senses into mm. cooking you know it, it can be learning a new language you know and where I live is nobody speaks English you know it's very much an immersive kind of experience and it's we've yeah. only been here for two and a half years and it's been oh huge workout for the brain you know being being here and 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 there's some days where you come home and I genuinely have that I can't possibly don't talk to me I can't deal with no there's nothing else going on tonight I just need to just I don't know probably shouldn't but mostly I just fall down in the heat but you know like it's it's could be language learning which you know allows so many other flow on experiences and, and travel travel and that probably flows on from the language thing although you know most of us when we travel because we're not doing what you're doing and just permanently relocating but even travel you know you, because you are, as you're talking I'm sort of thinking well you've got to be able to kind of navigate your way around somewhere new and there might be I remember my my husband and I went with his cousin and his wife to Russia wow. well, several years ago now and one of the biggest challenges for us was trying to navigate our way around because we were given maps provided with maps that were written in English but of course none of the street signs were written no. in English they're in or, or in you know kind of our alphabet they're in Cyrillic so you know that in itself was kind of a, a interesting cognitive exercise as well as then the arguments that ensued about whether or not we should be this way or this way and does that look like that street sign or <laughs> Definitely. But, I so, mean, yeah, very again, it's, it's all those senses, right? It's the senses, you know, the different smells, it's the different languages, mm. the different mm. engaging with someone Food. with a completely different backgrounds, you know, like whether, whether through Thai language, you know, like mumblings or, mm. or, or through trying to, you know, use a different language. It's And it's, I mean, and you can enhance those experiences as well. You know, you're going to... I don't know, you know, the, the Guggenheim and you want to, you know, you want to make the most of being in a new museum. You, you can learn about these things before you go and really make it a, a full learning experience. You know, I mean, understanding a bit about the artist makes that piece of art so much more. It's such a mm. experience, you know, and, and you're far more likely to remember it, to have learned something from it. Yeah, that's a, that's a little like I've, I've spoken to a lot of people because I, I went did my master's degree several years after doing my undergraduate degree. And one of the things that I found most helpful about going back to formal study was that I had a whole lot more life experience to kind of, and, and knowledge to anchor that stuff to, which made it more meaningful, which made it easier to learn. But I'm, I'm you know, thinking from a, about it from a brain perspective, I'm imagining there, you know, that there's all these bits of, you know, connections in there. And then for, it was easier for sort of, other bits to make pathways off those bits rather than kind of just entirely learning something new a bit like the first time you go to university where it's all just like what is all this stuff (laughs) exactly no for sure Mm. Mm. so interesting so we've got exercise we've got immersive experience we've got social relationships we've got learning is there anything else that we need to be doing or that we should be doing to really be able to perform at our peak in terms of our brains and then hopefully perform for a longer period as Mm. well in tip-top shape well sleep obviously is a big big player and uh, a healthy diet uh, there's, I mean, there's increasing amounts of diets definitely kind of outside of my scope of expertise, so I don't really tend to talk about it. But it absolutely has effects on the way your brain functions, on the way obviously you feel, on your energy levels, etc. And and uh, so really engaging, you know, a healthy diet 
and sleeping properly would be two big plans as well. Yeah, yeah. What I I distinctly remember when I had very small children, first baby, and he was unwell just with a cold or something, but nobody was sleeping. <laughs> and I remember going down, I thought I've got to go get some Panadol or, you know, Paracetamol, something or other. And I'll just drive down to the chemist. And I jumped in the car and I'm driving along and I'm thinking, I don't really think I should be driving. It, it's, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. You can feel your brain, and I suppose any time you're sleep deprived, you it, it's almost like, and that's one of the one of the reasons why personally sleep is so important for me. And I'm very hardcore about getting enough sleep, but because it's almost like I can feel my brain has slowed down, or it just can't make the connections that it needs to make in order to be able to respond to anything mm. effectively. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely, I'm still in that tunnel. I've got a four year old and a two year old, and well. The four-year-old now sleeps, but the two-year-old, not so much. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's sad, but, the, the, you know, I, I go to bed super early. And when you live in Spain and everybody's only heading out to dinner at 8.30, 9 o'clock, and I'm like, no, I'm off to bed. <laughs> They're all like, oh, what are you doing? But it's, for me, it's essential, and I, I just can't function without it. Yeah, yeah. so interesting that because, after, I mean, in, in all my podcast interviews with my wonderful guests, I ask this, you know, what are the kind of key well-being things? And it's so often, no matter what your perspective or where your kind of area of expertise, these same things come up of, of exercise, diet, sleep, yeah. usually some mindfulness or something or else in there, you know, and, and learning might be another component, but it, it, they're still these same core things that seem to come back as the essence of being able to stay well physically and emotionally and really perform at our best. Very much so. And, and you're right, mindfulness is, a, is another one. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I think, and I think you're right, and finding the reasons, finding a way to make, you know, that resonate with you, right? Like for me, the brain health, giving me exercising really took understanding that I actually am just that much sharper, you know, my memory's better, my attention, my focus, everything. That that for me really resonated for me. And so I think for all your listeners, like finding the right angle at which to justify it or mm. to really help it resonate for them is, is, is important, right? But I do think yeah. whichever way you look at it. Finding that why for the, yeah, finding the why for the motivation. I'm a particular way of putting it. <laughs> like, <laughs> One of the things that I, I know you've mentioned in some of the stuff that you've done that I've read, because I haven't seen you speak, but I'd love to, is about what you call brain resilience. What What is brain resilience? Well, I did, I touched on it before, but not with, within those terms. But so brain resilience is really this, this ability for your brain to function despite any kind of damage or, or degeneration. So really making it. Yep. And so that was, that were in terms of the brain reserve we were talking about. So really okay. trying yeah. to to grow as many connections, as many, you know, keeping it as healthy and, and, and as you can so that when we hit those rainy days, we have we have tissue that will work for us. And, and there's a nice study called the NUNS study where, where the, the researchers followed a bunch of nuns. You know, it's a nice, a nice cohort to, to study, right? They're, you know, they're... They don't drink, they don't smoke, they, they are, you know, you've, they've been within this environment for typically a long period of time. And, and these, this group of nuns in the States, they um, approached 
a convent and asked, you know, could we study you each year? Your, 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 you know, they took a bunch of, of metrics and, and, and brain measures and behavioral measures and they looked at and they followed how much these ladies engaged in which sorts of activities, you know, through, throughout their days and throughout their lives. And then they asked these women to donate their brains to science at the end, which is, you know, an amazing gift. So what they did was they looked at how these women, how much cognitive activities, how many cognitive activities and what types these ladies engaged in whilst they were alive. And then they looked at their brains you know, when they passed away. What they found was that for some women who, during life, they may have showed real impairment, that they, they really suffered, they were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, let's say, and they were really, they were really impaired. When they did the autopsy, their brains didn't really show significant markers of, of degeneration of Alzheimer's disease and degeneration. But then they took other brains of women who lived fantastically right up until the last days, who then on autopsy showed massive markers of Alzheimer's disease and degeneration. Their brains had really withered away, yet they, during life, hadn't shown those signs. And the way they try and justify that is that they, that these women, the ones that were still functioning up until the last, despite a lot of damage, had stockpiled enough brain reserve. They had, you know, a level of reserve so that they were able to keep functioning by finding either cognitive, like flexible workout, either they'd learned how to problem solve in different ways through their education, through their life, you know, constantly challenging their brains. They'd learned how to, well, I can't do it that way, so I'll, I'll do it a different mm. way. You know, I'll find a different workaround. And probably through in, in doing that had built up a lot of neurons that allowed, you know, neural connectivity that allowed them to do that. Whereas if you don't have a lot of spare neurons, neural connectivity, et cetera, when you hit a roadblock, you've got nowhere to go. And mm. Mm. If that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, it does make sense. And I, I can see that as being the argument. And I suppose, I mean, I, I don't know much about it, but this kind of notion of neuroplasticity, this idea that we can keep learning and growing things as we go along. So putting it in those terms makes some sense to me that, you know, if we've kind of stuck or, or perhaps there is an injury or perhaps there is the beginning of an illness that affects our brain, that if we've kind of built up enough of these pathways over time, then we just have workarounds. We have more options to keep solving the problems or doing what we need to or recalling the words or uh, the, the memories or the ideas or the concepts even. Exactly. Mm. Okay, so that's resilience in that's relationship to yep. our brain. Beautiful. Okay, I've learned so much. <laughs> so, and apart from anything else, there's been absolutely more reason to go out there and exercise and, and you know, do the healthy eating and those sorts of things. But, and I think the, the nice thing about it is, is that they're not, they're not too, I mean, and I, I enjoy exercising or rather I've learned, I mean, I've always been an exercise, but I've learned to enjoy it. You know, the, the res- once it's become a habit, I've learned, you know, it's, it's become innately rewarding for me and so, so mm. I enjoy it. But things like socializing or dance or, you know, like learning something new for me, they're really, it's not so bad. Yeah, no, it's fun. You know, like it's not such bad things to ask to be going and have a coffee and have a chat. It's almost justification, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go out and have dinner with someone or I'm going to go to the movies with friends or I'm going to go out for a drink because it's good for my brain. Exactly. Excellent, excellent. I think that's fantastic. And and yeah, again, stuff that I hadn't really I, I know that 
socializing is good for your mental health. I know that it's good for your mood. I know that it's good for perspective taking and lots of different things from a behavioral point of view. But I guess I'd never really thought through or, or didn't realize that it's actually having an impact at that real cognitive or neurological level as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Notice how I've noticed how much that our listeners can't see, but we're both pointing to our heads and you know, all these kind of you know things. Um, yeah, yeah, sort of mannerisms relating to the head and the brain that nobody can see except us. Desiree, are there any? You've, you've mentioned the Nun Study, and I'm going to link to that. Are there other kind of resources or TED talks or other things that you like to share with people? Books, perhaps that you know have helped you and and that you tend to recommend to others. Yes. Definitely. Lots. Yep. Um, <laughs> Can you give us a top, a top few, a little selection? Um, I think a good starting point is John Medina's Brain Rules for Aging. Mm-hmm. He, does a, he, does lots of, he does brain rules for baby, brain rules, I think, full stop, like for any stage of your life, but brain yep. rules for aging, I think, really nicely summarizes. very easy read. It it's, uh, gives you a lot of tips in, in a, along the number of veins that we've been talking about. Uh, what else? There's... Um, Spark. <laughs> oh, yes. I just read about that today, actually. That's about the exercise, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, Ratty, I think R-A-T-E-Y is the, the author's name. In fact, I think it might have been our mutual connection, James Garrett, uh, yeah. who I as a guest on. I think he might have even posted that because he is a prolific reader of nonfiction, and I think he may have mentioned that. He's got some lovely recommendations, actually. I've just I bought this, yep. this atomic cavics oh not his but the one he recommended the other day I'm like James Clears, yes. yes 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 uh, there's the your a fellow actually is she a fellow Kiwi a fellow Australian Sarah McKay Sarah McKay yeah yes Sarah yes she's been a guest she's a friend of mine and she has been a guest she does a lovely a lovely tea talk on on brain sleep and she's I mean she's a, yeah. a big researcher on on um, brain health and well-being yes. Yes, and her book, the Women's Brain book, is fantastic. That we have yeah. talked about on the podcast before too. Yep, absolutely. Yep, that would I, that would probably be about it. That's <laughs> there's actually there is a, a TED court that I will also link to, which I don't know if you've seen it, and I can't off the top of my head remember the name of the the guy, but it's about the Harvard study that looks at oh, yes. so all of those indicators in terms of relationships. So looking at this cohort of people who they've been yeah. studying now, some of whom for seventy years. Oh, and, the name of the study is it's a fa- yeah it's a, it's a fantastic study, and she does a lovely TED talk on it. Holt Lundstad. Mm-hmm. Is the is the the first author on the paper? Okay, yep. And it's a lovely meta analysis of of uh, data looking at at longevity and and factors that that predict living a long healthy life. Yeah, yeah. So I will link to that as well. Wonderful. So much in there. I I hope I'm certainly going away with lots of tips and ideas and a better understanding of the importance of all of these factors in maintaining our brain health, performing at our best now, but also really importantly, maintaining that brain health over a longer time, particularly if, you know, those predictions that you you mentioned earlier on are right about the prevalence of dementia in later life over kind of the coming generation. So I suppose our generation and beyond. Um, so I'm going to go and share that with my family and friends and get everyone out doing immersive learning experiences and, and exercising and eating well and making sure we all get our sleep um, to yeah, help I like that it. over time. <laughs> so I really appreciate 
your time, your input, your expertise. I will link to everything on the show notes where I will put your website as well in the show notes for this episode and social links. Is there anything else in particular that you want to share with our audience in terms of how to get in contact with you or is... is no, that's that's me. <laughs> they'll find you. They'll find you. Um, and you do have public, you do speak publicly. Obviously, you're in Spain at present. I know you were must have been back in New Zealand late last year. So all of the events that you run are listed on your website, are they not? Definitely. And and I mean, I, I have, well, I have family in Australia, so I've always an excuse to go. So I definitely, when, when I go, I'll, I'll certainly make sure I do some talks there as well. But yeah, we just finished a tour. I just did a tour last year of, of, of New Zealand, which was, which was fantastic. So Wonderful. It's, well, I will... I will make sure so people can find out where to find you. And I'm assuming that at times you may be online to do, Definitely. to share this sort of information as well. Yep. So people can find you via the events section on your website. And if indeed you do come to Australia, not only will it give us an opportunity to meet face to face, but I will very happily share <laughs> all of the details of any public workshops that you are running so that listeners can enjoy seeing you and hearing from you face to face. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you again, Desiree. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was neuroscientist and psychologist Dr. Desiree Dickerson. And I really feel that I ought to enroll in some dance classes or maybe travel somewhere exotic and immerse myself in new experiences following that conversation. I don't know whether you feel the same. I hope you do. I will also be hunting down the books that Desiree has recommended and we'll check out that TED Talk. And we've put all the links to those resources as well as Desiree's tips for a healthy brain as we age in the show notes for this episode. And as always, you will find those at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. Other happenings here at Potential HQ at the moment, I am running a free webinar soon. On It's on Thursday, the 21st of February, 2019, and it's on what psychologists know about creating a powerfully productive mind. So this is just for you. I'm going to take you through six proven but simple strategies for beating overwhelm and clearing out that mental clutter and helping you to get on top of your work and your tasks, or even just feeling like you're working at your most efficient, while of course also enhancing your well-being. It's only 30 minutes long. It's entirely free. I might even do some real-time coaching with you if we have the time. It's on the interwebs, so it doesn't matter where you are. You won't be seen by anyone on video, so you can wear your PJs if you like. I, on the other hand, will be seen. I will have to make sure I look presentable and you will in fact get to see me as well as listen to me, which is a little different from the podcast. And if you're keen to register for that webinar or to find out a little bit more, you can go to potential.com.au and there's a big registration button on the homepage that will provide you all the information that you need and the link to register. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you there. Also, If you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please let me and Jay and Andy know the best way to do that and to spread the word about the podcast is to rate and review it in iTunes. But we also happily receive email messages, comments on social media, or any other form of communication. So drop us a line. Right. It's time to hear a little from next week's guest, and I'm delighted to have Matthew Condy on the podcast next week. Matt is the kind of eclectic psychologist that I love talking 
talking to, he's held several key roles in clinical psychology, including child protection, youth and adult mental health, forensic drug and alcohol, emergency psychiatric services, perinatal and infant mental health, and refugee mental health, working in refugee camps overseas. But Matt also has sport in his veins, and he works with athletes and as an educator in the United States, teaching in the area of sport and performance psychology and leadership. And we will be talking about identity and positive psychology and performance and well-being and where and how they all intersect to help us to fulfil our potential. So here's a few words from Matt. If we're being vulnerable across multiple contexts throughout multiple times of the day, we're needing to cope with that vulnerability. We're needing to respond to Mm. that vulnerability. And are we leaning into it or are we running away from it or are we numbing it or are we avoiding it? And so... This all ties in with this notion of self-esteem, but also self-compassion, because if we're vulnerable and we're, we're seeking reinforcement from that social world, say, for example, being a parent, seeking that reinforcement from outside rather than within, then that's going to have a huge impact of our resilience in that particular area. So that relationship between vulnerability and resilience, I think, is is a really important one for us to be mindful of, but also to be curious about moving forward. That is episode 36 of the Potential Psychology podcast. It's happening next week. Thanks so much for being here with me. Enjoy your week and I'll see you then.